Uh, let's see. Most of you know I'm a substitute here, uh, so the substitute gets assigned what the message is supposed to be on. And uh, believe it or not, for the next uh, five weeks, uh, I have been assigned different passages in the book of Revelation. Um, today, uh, we're just going to do Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Uh, just by way of uh, so you know what's ahead, next week is Labor Day weekend, and I figure nobody will be here. So actually, the assignment is two chapters long next week. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, the message to the seven churches, and we're going to have a totally different view of that next week. So if you're not here, it'll be better. But we're going to actually have homework assignments next week. And then we get one week to see what John saw in heaven, and we get one week to see what John said Jesus was like in heaven, and then I get to do the fifth trumpet in a series of 21 uh, judgments of God on earth. And then finally the pastor comes home and he gets to finish this up for two weeks. Okay, so that's what's ahead. But uh, today we're going to start out in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Pretty simple today. It's certainly, for the most part, an introduction. This is uh, what we'll call the Revelation, and this is written by one John who uh, does not put the date of his writing in his writing, but this is the same John, we think, who wrote the Gospel of John in our Bibles. This is the same one who wrote the letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he writes this revelation. I think it's kind of interesting because uh, I uh, finished up Malachi when I got here a few months ago, and that was God's last word in the Old Testament. So now we're God's last word, at least we assume it's God's last word, in the New Testament. That's what Revelation. Uh, Revelation, uh, in these eight verses, uh, has to do with something called um, this word, Revelation. And uh, I'm sure most of you understand that we have given this a title, Revelation, but the text is really called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for revelation is a revealing, making something known that wasn't known before, an uncovering. That's what revelation is about. And John wants to reveal and uncover who Jesus Christ is. That's why this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, we have done something with this word for revelation. And the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, apocalypsis. And we've taken that and made another word about it, the apocalypse. Now, that's not what the Revelation is about, the English word apocalypse, because apocalypse sounds like a horrible, terrible thing of the end of the world that's coming when everything's going to be destroyed and we don't have any parts of it. And that's not what John wrote about. Some of that is included, but the word that he wrote about is the revealing, is the releasing of who Jesus really is. So this is not about something terrible that's going to happen. This is indeed about something that God is going to do to let us know. But rest assured, if Jesus came the first time to be a substitute for sin, he is coming again to be King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And this is that revelation from John. Now, in this uh, part that we're going to do, the first question we, uh, I guess, have to ask is, why is this important? So this is what John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the second part of the verse. Which God gave to him, to John, to show to his servants, that's us, the things that must soon take place. Now, when anybody writes something about something that's going to happen, then that becomes a prophetic thing. And that raises a lot of questions for us. The major question being, how soon is soon? Because we're not sure how to take this. Now, John is an old man when he writes this. He's 80, maybe 90 years old. We're not sure. He has already seen Jerusalem destroyed in 70 A.D. He's already seen people flee to places that he is going to send this message to. He's well aware of the fact that things are not good, and he would love to see this whole thing cleaned up right here, right now. Jesus comes back, we unveil him, we reveal him, King of kings and Lord of lords. He'd like to see that happen now. We'll give it three weeks, and then it'll happen. That's his soon. But that is not the soon that we face because it's now been a couple of thousand years and the soon hasn't happened. Now, some people say the book of Revelation, this letter, has already been taken care of. This happened in different world wars. This happened in all kinds of things. But the problem with that is when you read through this, it doesn't sound like anything we're familiar with that's already taken place. It appears as though it is still future. And that raises a problem to most people. And I want to talk about this problem as something between postponement and reality. Now, you can't read this book or this letter without understanding something about postponement when something doesn't happen that's supposed to happen and something called our reality in all this, okay? So to do this, you've got to bear with me. I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. Here's the first illustration. All of you who live in and around this city know about these places. They are unmarked four-way street intersections. That happens to be the one in front of my house. Now, you know what you do at an unmarked four-way intersection. I've been watching people for the last 10 years do something at this intersection. And for the most part, people don't even slow down. They just go right through. Now, I really, I slowed down at all these unmarked intersections, and people say, because he's an old man. (laughs) But why do people not slow down? And the answer is, because nothing has ever happened to me. Nothing has ever happened to me going through this intersection, so how can I possibly assume that something is going to happen now? Obviously, my reality is nothing's going to happen because nothing has happened. And we get caught in that all the time. About three months ago, uh, somebody gave me this book, and it's very apropos considering what we've been facing in uh, Washington in the state with fires. 
This is the story that has been researched of a fire in Hinckley, Minnesota in 1894. Now that means nothing to us, but this is an amazing story. The author apparently had a relative in Hinckley, Minnesota when this fire took place, and so he went and dug up all the research he could possibly find about what happened during this fire. In Hinckley, Minnesota, there were a lot of white pines, just like we have pines around here. It was a dry, hot summer, and a fire happened. A fire began in and around Hinckley, Minnesota. And the fire expanded and expanded and expanded. Now, just I'm not going to tell you the whole book, but let me assure you that Hinckley, Minnesota, burned to the ground in 1894. And along with it, most other towns in and around Hinckley, Minnesota. Hundreds of people were killed, many, many more people injured, no homes were gone. There was no such thing as the Forest Service there putting out any fire. There were no planes flying over to dump retardant. It just burned to the ground. Everything burned to the ground. Now, here's the interesting part. There were several railways that went through Hinckley, Minnesota, because they would take the wood after it was cut and sawed into sawmills. They would deliver it on railways, and one of these railways going through Hinckley was able, during the fire, to literally back up. It couldn't turn around, the train couldn't turn around, but it was able to back up and get people out of Hinckley. And the train filled with people who were burned. Their clothes were burned off. They had burns all over their bodies. They were covered in soot. They were just happy to get on the train and hopeful that the thing would back out of town and get them out of the fire, going north where there was no fire. So the story has to do with that train and lots of other things as well, as this train backs up and moves to the north out of the fire. When they get to the next town, north, They pull into the railway station. There's no fire in this town. And they say, everybody, get your belongings, get on the train. And people just looked at them. Why would we get our belongings and get on the train? Because there's a fire coming this way. You can see the smoke and look at these people. No one got on the train. There was no reason to get on the train because our reality was that this isn't going to happen to us. Now, I read that and I thought, that is the most bizarre thing I have ever heard until I read what this author had to say. Now, this guy is a researcher. That's how he got all his information. I hardly ever read things out of books, but I'm going to read you this because this is hard to believe. It's very short, just a paragraph. The author writes, psychologists in the United States and Great Britain who study the behavior of people in emergencies say that fires and other disasters often reveal the extent to which, without realizing it, we live our lives according to internal scripts. These scripts tend to dictate our expectations of what roles we and those around us should play who should do what and how as well as what can be expected to happen at a particular time in a particular place. The research also demonstrates that we are surprisingly unwilling to step outside our expected roles even when staring certain doom in the face. 
Can you imagine that? But apparently when things are postponed, when things don't happen to us, we don't expect them. We're not ready for them. It's not our reality. So here comes John writing this letter. He writes it a couple thousand years ago, and he says, I'm going to reveal Jesus Christ to you as he was revealed to me, and this is going to happen soon, and that is not our reality. So we have a choice. Either we can say, you know what, I need to pay attention to this, or we can just cast this all aside. Now, John wants us to know how he got this information. How was this obtained? And that is in Revelation chapter 1, the last part of verse 1, and the first part of verse 2. John got it two ways, from an angel and from his own experience. This is what he says. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he, John, saw. So John said, I heard this, an angel came and told me these things, and I live with Jesus, I saw some of these things that were supposed to take place. So this becomes very much his reality, the revealing of who Jesus really is. Now, John is on a place called Patmos. And we all know this. Patmos is an island. That's a picture of it. It's uh, in the uh, Dodecanese Islands of the Aegean Sea. Patmos is maybe, I don't know, 30 miles off the coast of Turkey. And uh, we don't know why for sure he is on the island of Patmos, but it appears as though he was there under arrest. He had been exiled to this island. Now, I had the pleasure of going to Patmos uh, some years back. Uh, This is not a very big place. Patmos, the whole island, is 17 square miles. That's pretty small. That's about the size of Coeur d'Alene City. It's not a big place. Today, there are about 3,000 people who live on Patmos. When John was there, there might have been a couple hundred. We don't know. So John is on this island of Patmos when all this takes place. Now, Patmos is not exactly a tourist destination today because there's nothing to do there. As a matter of fact, the only thing that there is to do there is to go to the cave that the Eastern Orthodox Church has constructed and say that's the place where John got this message from the angel. So here's a picture of the cave. That is not a picture of John going into the cave. That's a picture of me going into the cave. You weren't allowed to take pictures in the cave, so that's as good as you get. Now, nobody knows for sure all of the details of all of that, but that's where this takes place. There are visitors who come today, sometimes by boatloads, to see this sacred place where John got this revealing about Jesus Christ from an angel and from his own experience. Now, lastly, part one of our introduction There is an incentive to read this. Now, you don't get an incentive to read much of the Bible. So here is the incentive, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads. Uh, I don't know what you want to do with that, but strengthened, encouraged, that's the blessing from God for reading this. And then he says, who reads it aloud? That's interesting, isn't it? 
When was the last time you sat down and read the Bible aloud? Now, I don't know. Maybe he says, hey, it's good to read it aloud because a lot of people can't read and they respect the fact that you're reading it to them and they're going to hear it. But blessed are the people who read this aloud and blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who keep what is written in this. And the reason being why the blessing for reading this is simply this. For the time is near. There's that problem again. This is not our reality that the time is near. But John wants us to understand that maybe we should be prepared for this. And just like Hinckley just like driving through one of those unmarked four-way intersections and the next one you go through without slowing down, you'll think about this. Okay, that brings us to the second part of this, which is uh, some opening remarks first about who gets this letter. These are the recipients, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is a picture of the seven churches that are in Asia. We talked about this with the letters of 1 John. John wrote these letters to these churches. We don't know how he knew about these churches. Some people think he was an itinerant pastor who went from one church to the next. Some people think that he just knew. He was aware of them. He certainly was in Ephesus at one time or another. You want to put the slide up of those churches? At any rate, these, they are addressed to these seven churches. Are there more than seven? We don't know. These are not buildings. These are not big, massive churches. These are groups of people, probably people who have fled from Jerusalem with the destruction. They're probably Jews who have become Christians, and they're meeting together in homes and worshiping God. He has for them a greeting. Here is his greeting, verse 4. He says, grace to you and peace. Now, we never say that to anybody. Grace to you and peace. Do you realize that 17 times in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and John use this in writing to other Christians? Grace and peace to you. This is the whole thing with God right here. God's grace. God's love. God's determination to care for his creation, that's his grace. Nobody deserves that. And may it give you peace. May there be the shalom of the Old Testament. May you be content and satisfied. Grace and peace. I got to thinking about how we say hello and goodbye to people. I like the way we say hello. Hi, how you doing? Wouldn't it be nice to say to people, grace and peace to you? Boy, that would kind of, you know, wow, a little too official there, okay. That's his greeting, grace and peace. And then he says, this is the source of my greeting, the grace and peace. Verse 4 continues. It is from him, and these are very important words that he'll repeat over and over in the Revelation. Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Do we all understand who that means? Who is it that is who was and is to come. And then he adds, and the seven spirits are before his throne. We're not even going to talk about that. We'll get to that next week and the week after, the seven spirits before the throne. This is a note from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the one who was. The firstborn from the dead, the resurrected, the one who is. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who is to come. John said, I got this from Jesus himself who revealed this to all of us. All right, are you okay with the part one and part two? So let's go to part three where he gets into a little bit of the meat of this, a reminder about what Jesus has done for us. Three things he says Jesus has done for us. The first one, he has freed us from sin. Verse five, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, we understand what sins are. They are just the inability that we have to reach the perfection of a living God. Most of us aren't good enough to do that. So Jesus came to take away our imperfections, our sin. Now, I, I thought that I would... Uh, I thought I'd give you a little illustration and a little education here this morning as well. So uh, back in April, most of you know, I had to take a little trip to Budapest, Hungary, to speak there. And every time we go back to Hungary, we rehearse what you have to do to go to Europe. So let's say you're a lady, and my wife was with me on this trip, and the first thing you need to do is to take your hair dryer with you. But unfortunately, your hair dryer doesn't work in Europe. Certainly doesn't work in Budapest, Hungary. Now, the reason it doesn't work is because somebody decided that electrical products in America have two flat prongs. But everybody in Europe has two round holes to plug into. The two round holes happen to be 220 volts of electricity, and the little flat ones that we have in America are 110 volts of electricity. So you can't plug these flat hair dryers into a round hole. So you have to get an adapter. But hey, I know that. So I took an adapter with me. I'm a pretty smart guy. I know how to take care of things that need to be done. I took my adapter. Now, I also know that you have a problem because if you plug into the adapter, you are plugging in 110 volts to 220 volts, and whoops, that doesn't work. So you need to have a transformer. A transformer changes the voltage from 220 to 110. I am really good at this. I know how to solve this problem, just like people know how to solve the problem to be righteous before God. I know how to do this. So I took my transformer. I took my adapter plug. My wife took her hair dryer. We plugged everything in and burned the hair dryer right up. Because on the hairdryer, there is a 50-watt maximum, I mean on the transformer, a 50-watt maximum, and when you plug in the hairdryer that's about 110 volts, it just burned it up. So we burned up one more hairdryer. I thought I knew how to do it. I thought I was ready for it, but I really wasn't prepared. I like this, John said, 
This is what Jesus did, and he got it right. No mistakes. He freed us from our sin. Two more things, he adds. One, he made us a kingdom, a kingdom, and also priests to his God and Father. Kingdom, that's a strange word, isn't it? This is what Jesus has done for us. He has made us a people, a kingdom, a a people who live together, who are united, like we have a country. We're part of his kingdom. We talk about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus did. He made us this people together. And he made us also priests. And that doesn't mean anything to us because we're not priests, but we are. A priest is someone who stands in the gap between God and humanity. And that's what God has given to all of those who are in his kingdom. He says, go out into the world and reach this world. This is what Jesus did for us. He freed us from missing the mark of righteousness. And he made us a people. And he gave us a mission to be ambassadors and priests. So with a position like that, John says, this is my response. Verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I like that. As a matter of fact, I like it so much, I went all the way to Revelation 19, verse 1. This is what John wrote there. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Try that out with me. Because when we get to heaven, you're going to have to say this. Let's try it. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. That's what this book is about. It's about revealing Jesus Christ, who he really is, and what he has done. One last part, back to the matter at hand. Chapter 1, verse 7, this is what he says. Behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, those who crucified him. All the tribes or the peoples of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John does not know when it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. The question is, can we expect it as our reality? That's what John wants us to do. And he ends with this verse, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha, the Omega. I am the beginning, I am the end. I am everything. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. There it is again the Almighty. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have no idea what John did after he got these first eight verses. I don't know if he got the verse, these eight verses and then he took a break. I don't know if he went through all the way this whole, this whole thing of 20-some chapters and then he got a break. I don't know what he did. But it would seem to me that that much boiled down information had to cause him to just say, I need to just sit down and think about this. So I'll quit this with a picture I took. This is the island of Patmos. There's a few people, houses in this view, but not much. 
I, I somehow, when I was at this place, I thought to myself, you know, maybe John went to this very spot, and he sat down there by the sea, and he said, man, I got to think about this. This is really something. And I encourage you this week, read those first eight verses and get ready for the exciting task that John has to reveal Jesus to to us. Not the Jesus we know from his gospel, but the Jesus we know as he is unveiled as King of kings and Lord of lords. And expect it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we open this book, and, and we have to admit that there's lots of things in this book that confuse us and confound us. But I think we understand the main purpose, and we want to see Jesus, the fullness of him, the fullness of an almighty God who loved us enough to become human and live among us and to die for us. Oh, Lord God, may this be our reality. No matter what happens, no matter what struggles we have, may this be our reality, who you really are and what you have done. In his name, amen. Well, may the postponement not dampen your enthusiasm for the reality of Jesus' return to be fully revealed to the earth. And go as a kingdom people, as ambassadors for him, until he comes. God bless you this week. You're dismissed.